Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Apennetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countryman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sisypiter, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so last time we ended with the discussion of Apennatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. We talked about how Achaia is Greece, the Roman province of Greece. And this would have been a part of the nations that would give thanks for and to Aquila and Priscilla. Um, remember, Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos, who was then able to refute the Jews who opposed the new covenant in Achaia. And so we have a special mention there. So that's sort of the ending piece. There's a greeting to Apennatus as, as a Christian man and who's beloved, um, but there's also a way in which his mentioning, Paul's mentioning of Apennatus was 
was sort of a, a way of continuing the honor of Priscilla and Aquila. And so we get to 6, and verse 6 has Mary. And there are many Marys in the Bible, and so which Mary this is is not something that I think we can know. But furthermore, uh, not only can we not know which one, but talking about the various possibilities would take some deal of time. I initially started out by thinking, maybe I'll talk about the different Marys and quickly gave up after about a page, select, delete, and decided to move on. But we have a number of Marys that are worthy of of consideration in the Bible, but there's just too many uh, to know who this is. So what we do know, it says, Greet Mary, who labored much for us. So she labored much for Paul and for the saints. Now, is he mentioning the us? Is that for the, the band that he's currently with, or is it just the group, whoever was with him, Uh, before is it for him and for the church in rome and i i think that there's some combination there essentially it's for paul and for the saints probably those who are in rome and so this idea that mary is known for working much in the church and so what i wanted to do there is to draw for you uh, some questions for application so point four she labored much for paul and the saints what are you doing to help with the work what's the work the work is glorifying God, right? We talk about the doxological focus. We talk about how do we glorify God in all of life. And so you can say, okay, uh, my, my own private worship is, you know, the work, right? You can say household worship is the work. You can talk about how your ordinary dominion work in daily life is a part of the work. But in particular, what is it that you're, when you look at the church and you say, the church is an institution of God, the institution of God that's designed to make it so that we're bound together, to work together, to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. My question for you is, how does your work to glorify God look different than if there weren't a church? And you can say, I'm coming and learning, right? But how are you taking advantage of this assembly of persons that have self-identified and sworn to work together. And so you look around and you go, here's a bunch of people with gifts and resources and a mutual commitment by covenant to work together. And so ask yourself, how am I taking advantage of that? How am I leveraging that? How am I using that to work more powerfully? If you were to die today, would it be said of you, by the saints that remain on earth, this person labored much? Labored much for us. When you die, make sure that your absence is felt in the sense that you are a loss. That there is, all of a sudden, everybody goes wow, I didn't realize the cart that we're pulling was this heavy. I guess he was carrying a lot of weight. That value of helping to make your presence known by pulling hard. So what are you doing to make it so that you're not making it harder for others to do the work? In particular, there are warnings like in Hebrews it says to not make it a grief to be ruled Right? If somebody has a rule over you as a church officer, or somebody has a rule over you as a husband, or as parents, 
Are you making it a grief to be over you in authority? Or is it a delight to rule you? You bring honor to God by making it so that those who rule over you find it a delight to have authority over you. Because you work hard with them. You make it easier for them to rule. You carry part of the weight with them. You seek to bless them. You're thankful for what they do in terms of the leading. Now, if you're in authority, are you making it a grief to, to be under your rule, right? But those are the kinds of things to ask yourself about the laboring. What are you doing to help to accomplish the work of the kingdom and to free up those with public duties? And so I, I've walked through the next points are thinking about things from station. Okay, a wife should support her husband to be able to rule the house well in a way that brings honor to the name of God and to the cause and to cause the children of the house to know the faith and to be ready to pass it to the third generation and to take duties from the husband so that there is time, money, and ability to be hospitable in private ministry and freedom and resources for the husband to do public work in the church and or possibly the state. Six. We talked about that a lot. We talked about women a lot. So I'm going to move on quickly. Children should help to get the household in good order and to do chores and to work to free up the mother to support the father and to help the father and the mother in the work of the estate building and in hospitality and in ministry. If you're over about four years old and you're still part of somebody's house and you don't have anything you do to contribute to the house, ask your parents, how can I help with the house? Do you hear me, kids? Anybody who's four years old and up and you're still in a household, ask your parents, how can I help to make work taken off of you? How can I help to make it so that we are better off as a family? How can I help in ministry so we can serve the saints? Now, children, do you think of yourselves as a part of the church or not? Are we functional Baptists? Do we think, yes, you've got water on you, but do you have any special place where you're a part of this visible assembly, where you think the covenant relationship you've got with the church is significant? And so if you want to be a blessing to the church, you first seek to be a blessing to your parents, and when you seek to be a blessing to your parents and you think about how to help them to serve others in the church, that makes it so you're participating in blessing the body. Men. Men should manage their houses well to free up the elders to focus on prayer and teaching and to free up the deacons to help those who are weaker. And they should seek to become officer qualified so that they can take up Public work. The men. How you're leading your wife and giving her resource and giving her resources and jurisdiction so that she's able to manage the house and to do good works. I'd encourage you, go by yourself, write down your answer to this, think about it. And think about have you actually effectively done that? 
Are you leading your children in doing good work in the household and in the church? If you haven't done it with them, right, then they're probably not going to get trained to do it. How are you working to get your houses in order as the pastor of your home? How are you helping the elders and the deacons? How are you putting your wife and children to work to serve in the church? Don't even worry about C until A and B. But you want to get to C. So then here's a question. D, does your house receive spiritual and sometimes even material blessing in the church? So how can you bring material and spiritual blessing to the church? And that doesn't just mean to the entity as you know, giving money into the storehouse or whatever. That means the members. How do you bless other members? How do you put your spiritual and material goods to bless other people? E. Remember vow 9 and vow 10. Okay, I'm just going to read those and ask you to think about these things. And this is something that you should think about as well in uh, wives. And then also I would challenge anybody who's single to think about this as well. So E and F. Everybody think about this. Apply this to yourselves. How are you keeping vow 9? Do you promise to glorify God by seeking to spread the knowledge of the truth by engaging in and supporting evangelism and discipleship? What are you doing to evangelize and to disciple? You might go, I'm really new in the faith and I'm learning. Okay, how quickly are you trying to learn? Are you just waiting to be spoon-fed enough that you can then finally eventually teach? You should do a lot of reading and a lot of listening to stuff. We have this amazing place in time where you can make the best preachers on the planet give you a sermon whenever you want. Vodi Bakum, I'd like you to preach for me right now while I'm getting ready in the morning in the bathroom. Could you do that for me? He goes, yes, absolutely. Just tell me exactly when you want me to start. And you say, could you pause for just a second? You hit the pause button. He goes, yep. You say, could you repeat that for me like four times because I was not listening to you at all. And so you rewind it and you hit play. And you're like, I'm sorry, I started thinking about something else. Just wasn't listening at all. You rewind it, you press play. You can make him do it over and over and over again. You can make me do that. Right? You've got recordings. I've got like 300 and something recordings. Some of them probably are worth listening to. But the, the thing is you have the best preachers on the planet. You have recordings of them. And you can listen to them whenever you want you can do it while you're doing other stuff. You can do it while you're washing dishes. You can do it while you're hiking. You can do it while you're sitting, drinking tea. You, know, you can do it when you're in a terrible class that you have to be at because it's a part of your grade and you want to listen to something useful while that person is droning on about godless nonsense. We have amazing capabilities. There's the ability to do that. And there's all sorts of audiobooks. And, and then the cheapness of books now. Books used to be so expensive. And they're so cheap now. So what are you doing to be ready to be able to engage in and support evangelism and discipleship? And if you have the knowledge, what are you doing to engage in evangelism and in discipleship? Are you engaging in a Christian education with your children? Are you making it so that there's an ability for them to grow in knowledge? That minimally, of course, looks like there's going to be household worship 
But is there a teaching beyond that? Remember, Deuteronomy 6 says you do it by the way. As you're walking around, you're just, you're just walking and you go, here's life, something happened. right? Here's a car that almost hit us. How do we interpret that? You say, that car almost hit us. The Lord preserved us and stopped that. That's a way, when you're driving, by the way, you can say, here's some truth, and you're giving education, you're teaching. You're looking to have formalized times, and you're also looking to, as you wander around in life, and as you go about your business, to label your experiences with the Word of God. tithing to the church and cooperating with others in the church in order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So how are you cooperating with others? People are annoying. Amen. And we need them. People are difficult and we need each other. We have different strengths, different weaknesses. In the providence of God, He gave us us. And so, how do we help each other? How do our strengths come alongside other people's weaknesses? How do we identify what's worth doing and work together to do it? And so, men, there's a cultural tendency to kind of say, leave the social aspect to the women, but we have to make an effort to connect our households. Now, the women can help. A very important part of that. We'd all die in bad-smelling, dirty places, speaking more foully than we ought, if we did not have the presence of women to help us to be improved. And so, the reality that there is a civilizing influence that makes it so we don't live in a military camp is one of the great blessings of having women, but we need to care about each other, and we need to engage with each other, we need to honor each other, we need to seek to spend time with each other, we need to seek to bless each other, and so we need to make sure that we are making an effort to be intentional, to reach out, to care for each other, to try to work together. And here's what's going to happen if we don't. The women in our households are still going to suggest things that we do, and then we're going to just be reacting, as opposed to thinking about and planning what is the stuff that we want to see happen. So, we need to engage, we need to talk to our own wives and children, and we need to seek to engage with each other. Now, those of you who are single and adults, the idea that you have a freedom, you have less time for, caring, for having to care for other people that are in your house, and so the fact that you have extra time that you can use to try to Reduce some of the burdens of interacting there, seeking to carry more of the load. You know, one of the best ways, if you're trying to get married, one of the best ways to get a good spouse is to be seen doing service in an effective and competent way because it makes it so that you become notable and a man is valued by what others say about him. And so when you're in a culture like this where everybody knows, everybody's trying to help to see everybody get married. People are talking about and looking for opportunity to bless in that way. And so serving well, being known for service, is one of the best ways to see that happen. Vow 10 ends with 
that we all swear to work in the church with zeal and knowledge for peace, purity, and unity in the truth. Zeal and knowledge for peace, purity, and unity in the truth. Now, peace looks like, yeah, you don't have unnecessary fights, but it also looks like blessedness generally. And purity in doctrine and practice and unity in the truth. So, how are you working on that? That's for everybody. So, married men, are you seeking to become officer qualified? I encourage you to make sure that you are, that you have that as an intentional thing, and that means you need to think about the qualifications of officers intentionally. Any young men, are you looking for a text that says, how can I be a man? Right? How can I be a man? The officer qualification set is basically the checklist of, this is what it is to be a man, as God designed it. One of the glorious things that's said by Pontius Pilate of Jesus Christ when he is unjustly tried, when he's about to be executed publicly. And Pilate doesn't think this guy is guilty. And he says, behold the man. This wasn't behold a man, right? That would be a compliment to almost, I don't know any men that when somebody says, that guy's a man. I don't know any man that's like, how dare you, right? The The response is always, that's awesome. Yes, yes. But Jesus is not only a man, he is the archetype of manliness. If your conception of Jesus doesn't have any place for Jesus walking into a place, throwing tables and whipping people in a church, then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Behold the man. If you want to know what manhood is, you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you want a distilled summary of what that is, you read the qualifications of officers. The qualifications of officers. That is what it is to be a man. H. Are you seeking to know the Bible and the standards of the church well enough that you can teach it? Right. The Bible's a big book. When people make jokes about long books, they say, it's got like a thousand pages. The Bible beats that. The Bible's a long book. And you should know it. You should know it well. But you know how you can accelerate your knowledge of doctrine? is by looking at the work that the church has done over the last 2,000 years to seek to capture and systematize that. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Larger Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, much shorter than a thousand pages. A lot shorter than a thousand pages. And you go through that and you begin to test it. And there's proof text, so it's organized, so you can check it. You ask yourself, do I disagree with these things? Are these things true? And do you know it well enough, at least the shorter catechism, that you know what the common misunderstandings are? When you look at it, and it has in there, it references free will, you go, oh, that must contradict the earlier part that said God controls everything. So, up two things that appear to contradict, we can't resolve them, and that's where it is. The Shorter Catechism, it's just a mystery. If you can't resolve it, then come talk to me about it. I got books, also. So, either read that, or come talk to me about it. Or both. And so, are you able to deal with common misunderstandings? 
in the Shorter Catechism at least. I'm telling you, pursue that. Now, one of the other things that men you can get good at, and that also you can, that your wives can get good at, and this is for something that can happen in hospitality, is private catechizing and doctrinal discussion to help new people along. That powerfully deepens your own understanding, and it powerfully moves other people along. You know, I can, I can, somebody can sit and hear a hundred of my sermons, and one private conversation trying to walk through some basic misunderstanding they've got, can do more to reshape their understanding than all those because it's directly addressing the thing. And you can do that too. I don't have some special superpower. right? The Holy Spirit gave all of us that superpower. This is a spiritual gift when he gives us knowledge. And if we're able to talk to people about that, if we're able to look for ways to engage in conversation about spiritual things. And so, you know, I try to give a public example of that when we have the you know, the providence, providence, when we have the, the meal after the evening service, right? I'm trying to answer questions and give an example of how you could do that. That should occur in hospitality. But if hospitality in my home, you're all welcome to, you know, the study, 6.30, Thursday nights, trying to give an example of how hospitality and using that for discussion looks, right? And so you have those things, and the hope is that those would be picked up by others. Now, that's a requirement for an elder. It has to be hospitable. But... The idea that everybody can do that. There's two breakings of bread in Acts. In chapter 2, there's two powerful types of breaking of bread. We have the breaking of bread in the public ministry, in the Lord's Supper, and there's the breaking of bread from house to house. And that's where stuff gets done. Stuff gets done when you break bread at a table, and people are there and you're talking about the things of God, and stuff gets done in the public assembly of the saints. Those are where relationships get built, where they are a reaffirming of responsibilities to each other, and where you figure out what needs to go happen. Tables are where people agree to do stuff together. And sharing a meal makes it feel like it's more than just small talk. And so you have this sharing together in talking about weighty things and sharing together a material blessing. And so I encourage hospitality from house to house. And I, I'm hearing reports of it. And I appreciate that hospitality that's occurring. I want to encourage you all to continue to be intentional and to increase your intentionality about that. So then, there are three men who have been nominated for the office of deacon. We'll be announcing a plan for how to deal with the examination process at the next council meeting. and talking about it and hopefully voting to adopt or asking for changes on that. But so the, the deacons... They should do capital work and mercy work. So they manage the money and they manage the mercy. They order. They help to make things be in order in terms of the physical things and helping to keep the schedules rolling and that kind of stuff. They provide counseling for order in people's households. Because right? Dickens' house is in good order and so they're able to counsel other people about how to deal with disorder in order to help the elders to not have to do all of that. And that's supposed to make it so that the elders have an easier time focusing on prayer, doctrine, judgment in public matters, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training new officers in righteousness. Elders should bear the weight of rule together. And they might have different giftings. There's a gift of exhortation and government. Exhortation is, is sort of you, you tell somebody a doctrine and you tell them to apply it. 
Um, people often use the word preaching for that. So preaching is just exhortation. Do this thing. Here's what the Bible says to do. Do it. Like the urging on. So some elders have a little bit more kingly tendency. They are better at exhortation and government. Others might be more priestly and good in sort of the private teaching of catechizing, where they're walking through stuff with people. Right? They might be more gifted there. Um, and so that would typically also kind of tend towards being good at counseling. Um, there might also tend to be good at training people. If you're relational and you're good at getting stuff done, training goes better with those people. Um, there's organizational giftings that people have to varying, various degrees. And then there's also those who are good at organizing doctrine and teaching doctrine and engaging with sort of a court type of judgment where there's a careful sifting of facts and giving information uh, that is going to be organized into sort of expected case law. Here's something we did in the past. We're setting a precedent and you're thinking about the implications of it, and you're trying to draw the appropriate text together. Those who are, are good at different kinds of work, there's a division of focus. They all need to be able to do all of it. But some of them are going to be better at some things than others, and so the ones who are best at things are going to probably be more dominant in those things. But it's important that there not be a dividing out of those things so that no other elders are able to do it. Now, those are different stations that men can fill. I had a long list there of men of what they should do. And so what I want to say is children and women, how can you help the man who is the head of your house to bear all of that weight? How can you help to make it so that they're able to do that? Now, one of the key things that I want to make sure is emphasized, and I have a title on here, the word honor is in it. That long list of stuff that we expect men to do should come along with, when they, when they are mightily striving to do it, it should come with honor. They're going to punch and miss they're going to slip sometimes. They're going to take it in the jaw. Right? These are the problems. This is the struggle. This is the fight. And we have to work together to deal with curse and strife and to deal with the fact that we grow old and get weaker. And so are we carrying together? Are we working in the same direction? Is that occurring by household? Is that occurring as a church? What are we doing to help each other to bear with that? And that's why a culture of honor is so important and why greetings are not just pleasantries. Greetings are life-giving. You know the difference between when somebody walks by you and doesn't acknowledge you, and when they do. You know the difference when nobody does it, versus when everybody does it. You know the difference between when somebody introduces you and doesn't say anything kind, versus when somebody introduces you and says, this guy did this and that other thing. Right, the power of being introduced honorably versus not. And the remembrance of things, the reminders of those things. 
The other thing is, if you don't honor anybody, then the difference between the honorable and the dishonorable reduces. You know what you want to do with people who are dishonorable? Make them feel the lack of honor. You know how you can do that? By honoring the honorable. Every man craves honor. We desire it deep in our souls. And when those who are honorable are honored, it urges men on to be honorable. One of the things that's interesting about capitalist society, in a society where you don't have property being controlled by the state and handed to people based upon a noble title, or where you don't have a socialist system, right? One of the interesting things about capitalist society is that respectability becomes one of the things that everybody starts to chase. And that respectability is determined by the norms of the society. For us, respectability right now does not look like what respectability looked like 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. Right? Respectability is all of the get-rich ads that you see on YouTube. The idea that look at me, I'm competent and powerful, those are sort of the more pagan respectability things. If people think about servant leadership as being sort of this thing that's just a part of culture, of course the people in authority are supposed to serve. That is not the way that people have always thought about it. Luke says in the pagan nations, the people who rule are called benefactors. You get a position of authority and you get to use it. You get to exploit it for your benefit. We're all mad about the Bidens and the various ways in which there seem to be you know, bribes coming in from this, that, and the other country. That was the norm. They were just making it rain. Now, we're disgusted by it. Praise God, because there's Christian influence here. Well, if we have this sense of respectability, that is a leftover element of you don't get your honor just because of a station you're born into. And you don't get your honor just because you're a bureaucrat. You get honor because you did things that other people thought was worth paying you for. You get honor because you provided some useful public service. You get honor from that sort of thing. Respectability is a part of what Marxists would call bourgeois society. And it's a, one of the values that people have because of the idea that you can do something to affect your honor. Now, every culture has things that you're expected to do to get honor or dishonor. But free societies that have private property rights have the most social mobility. The most ability for a person to rise or fall and for them to suffer the consequences of their bad actions and to receive the positive blessings of their good actions. Now, that idea of a culture of honor, we see that with greetings. And so these greetings, even though this is a society that was imperial and there's slavery in it, and there are a number of other things about government graft that make it so that it's less mobile, the church was a place where even if the economic order was not one that had as much mobility, still, inside of the church, there was a Movement of honor, up and down. And we'll go through some of the examples here. Let's first go to verse 7. It says, 
Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. So Andronicus and Junia, and suggests a relationship like husband and wife. And notice here's another woman getting listed. There's a place for women to be publicly honored in the church. And this was in a society where you did not really deal with women publicly. In, in Roman courts, women weren't allowed to give testimony themselves. They had to have a man give. That's the level to which women did not have a place in the public life. In a matter of your own case, you were not supposed to be able to represent yourself or give your own testimony. So that gives you a sense of the problem there. Now, here in the church, there's public acknowledging, public honoring, greet Andronicus and Junia. Just like Priscilla and Aquila, you have Priscilla, the wife, being listed and being acknowledged. You have Junia being acknowledged. And both of them are dealt with as countrymen. You can translate it as relatives or kinsmen, but in probability we're talking about the fact that they're Jews. So greet Andronicus and Junia and my fellow prisoners. They're my, fellow, my, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. So they are Jews and they are Christians who have suffered for Christ. And we've already talked about it's not just the husband that's listed, but the wife. She's a yoke mate with her husband. She's working also. She's working and known as a Christian. And when her husband Andronicus was thrown in prison for some righteousness, Junia was so involved that they arrested her too. So she gains honor and is listed as someone who is a fellow prisoner, and not just a fellow prisoner, but who is also of note among the apostles. So how would she be of note among the apostles? How would Andronicus be of note among the apostles? Well, it says, who were also in Christ before me. They were likely in Jerusalem, either because they lived there, or because they were present for the celebration of Pentecost, when the first Pentecost after Christ occurred. And so they became Christians very early. They accepted the new administration, the new covenant. They accepted that Christ was the long hoped for Messiah before Paul did. And while they were in Jerusalem, they either lived there and were very useful as members of the local church and became of note to the apostles, or they were there for that short period of time and were so useful on that trip that they became noted. Now, it's pretty hard to be of note amongst the group that would include the apostles, the 70, these 120 office holders that are there when you have the assembly that's occurring. On a day at Pentecost where you have 3,000 households entering into the new administration, a place where you have the Hellenized Jews starting to feel like they're being mistreated and you have the seven first deacons being appointed. 
right? This is what's going on. And you have over and over again persecution and public preaching and, and people converting and people coming in. You have enormous amounts of baptisms occurring. And in the midst of all of this, with all of those people, Andronicus and Junia become noted among the apostles. Do you think that that was accepted as a very honoring statement in Rome? In their church in Rome, when Paul said, Andronicus and Junia, who were Christian before me, and who are of note, they're notables to the apostles, do you think that, that would have a significant impact on their reputation amongst the saints in Rome? Verse 8. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Amplius means large. You get the word ample. It's an ample portion. Paul was known for not being physically imposing. So if they spent time with each other, Amplius could be his real name, or Amplius could be a nickname, and it could sort of be a non-ironic little John. There's Paul and Big. And so he calls him beloved in the Lord implying a special relationship with this brother. A special affection. So Amplius seems to have provided encouragement or given something to help Paul along the way to make it so that Paul was very thankful for this brother. Now, there's a name that is kind of the more full spelling. Ampliatus. That name is on a tomb that was made in the first century in Rome. And because it's from the same time period, in the same place, such a similar name, it is reasonable, reasonably probable, I don't know, it's reasonable to think that this is the same person. One of the things that's interesting is the tomb only has one name on it, Ampliatus. The only people who have one name in Rome are slaves. I was just talking to you about how the church, even in a society with economic immobility, there is a place for honoring here. It is not normal for slaves to have a tomb. But this man, though he was of low economic station, there was a culture of honor in the church where even though he couldn't receive the economic rewards of his work, he was able to receive honor. He is honored by the Apostle Paul. And he receives a tomb. Honor in the church is a way to encourage the honorability of men. Even when there's not economic honor, even when there's not some sort of state-given honor, We should honor those who are honorable. Verse 9. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my brother. So Urbanus just means urbane or refined, elegant. And it's ironic that he's known for hard work, right? You go, here's refined. He's a hard worker. That's that's this guy's name. We got a lot of pun things that happen here shortly hereafter. Um, so it's ironic he's known for hard work and someone else is working for the cause with evidence. Stachus, that word is, 
it means like an ear of corn or an ear of grain or a stack of grain. It's said to be one of the 70 from Luke 10, 1. So the, the 70, this is tradition. This is not in the Bible. John Gill talks about it, for example, in his commentary on Luke 10, 1. Uh, and so this Stachus is thought to be the same Stachus who is a pastor of uh, kind of the principal assembly that was in Byzantium. So he's one of the 70. Uh, that's what's listed there. And so I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the tradition. Um, and so the idea that the 70 ended up largely spreading out when there was a dispersion that occurred, uh, it would be odd for him to be in Rome, but he could be in Rome temporarily. And here's an interesting thing. Stachus gets greeted, but Peter doesn't. Look at the list of greetings. There's no Peter. If Peter is the first bishop of Rome, then why is he not there? Why is he not being greeted? Is Paul going to greet this many people and not greet Peter if he's the bishop of Rome? This has more greetings in it than any other letter. But it doesn't greet the bishop of Rome. The doctrine that Peter is the first bishop of Rome is invented whole cloth. There's no evidence of it in Scripture. It is not there. And in fact, there's ample evidence against it. The construction of the idea that there is a pope, that is Peter, is fanciful nonsense. You have one of the 70 get greeted, potentially, or maybe not even that. Maybe he's even less well-known than that. Maybe he's just another guy named Stachus. But no greeting to Peter. Verse 10. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. So, Apelles, here's a greeting. Salute Apelles. He's approved in Christ. And he's saying, there's a lot of evidence that this guy is a Christian. So Apelles is the root of the same word uh, appellation, which just means name or to call something something. So what appellation do you give to a thing? So Greek name, he's approved in Christ. right? He has a name in Christ, so to speak. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Why, why not greet Aristobulus? Why greet the household of Aristobulus? So here's another historical interesting thing. Interesting to me. The household of Aristobulus, there's a grandson of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? He's the one who tried to murder Christ with all the other two-year-olds and below. He was like, you know what we should do? Kill all the two-year-old boys. That way I can remain king of Judah. Aristobulus was a grandson of Herod. He lived in Rome. But when he died, his servants were escheated to the state. You know what escheating is? It's when property... Nobody else inherits it, and it goes to the state. Okay, so all of his property, Aristobulus' property, was inherited by the state, and the emperor took his household. So all of the slaves, all of the property, all of the real estate of Aristobulus was taken by the emperor into his house. But they retained a connection from before. They were known as those who were of Aristobulus' house. 
So it's just an easy organizing way. You go, who, how did you guys function before? Okay, we'll give you new duties, and, and the people that were in charge before will continue to be in charge. It's the most efficient way to go forward. The judgment of your prior master would be an efficient way of determining who has what capabilities, and we might change that depending on how it goes, but that's just how that would work. So this household of Aristobulus is a set of slaves that were taken by the emperor. And so this household of Aristobulus would not include Aristobulus because he's dead. And then there's a particular slave named Herodian. There's a greeting to the household of Aristobulus, the grandson of Herod, and to one of the servants who's given a name that's based upon the name Herod. Herodian. So these are believers that are in the emperor's house. This is a part of that invasion that's occurring where the beast empire of Rome is being subverted, taken over, and infiltrated by the church. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Notice there's no greeting to Narcissus. That means Narcissus himself or the mistress of the house, neither of them were in the Lord. But apparently the household was large enough and notable enough and there were enough Christians in it that it's worth greeting the people in it. So there's a number of Christians there. Here's a pagan household with Christians infiltrating it. That's sort of like if you have a bunch of Christian employees at Google or Amazon and you go, there's a significant presence there of Christians. Are they able to influence that, to leaven it, to subvert the paganism there? If you work for a non-Christian... Seek to be a good Christian there and be known as a Christian. Give them opportunity to persecute you as a Christian. If you're not known to be a Christian, you're not going to get persecuted for being a Christian. If you are known as a Christian, then you can begin to have a presence and influence as a Christian and you might have something to rejoice about in terms of the suffering that comes for persecution. Verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord, greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. So Tryphena means delicate, and Tryphosa means soft. Here's another pun thing. Delicate and soft, who labored much in the Lord. Now, In the Greek, it's not just that they have labored. It's not that they were laboring and they stopped. In the Greek, it's they have labored and they're continuing to labor. So Tryphena is delicate and Tryphosa is soft and delicate and soft have labored a lot and they are laboring a lot in the Lord. And then there's Persis, which means to cut or to divide. And Persis, it said, labored much in the Lord. And the Greek there is past tense. Still alive, getting a greeting, but not laboring anymore, but being honored. How do you get that? How do you get still alive, not working, honored? Because of work done in the past, and there must be some sort of disability of age or injury that is preventing ongoing work. This is a person who desires to be profitable, perhaps now is incapable of doing as much that's profitable, but 
is known for having done so when she had the ability. And so those who are disabled by age or injury, who had a reputation of working hard, it's our job to keep alive their reputation of hard work. So that though they now are incapable of providing the use that they once provided, they are known as ones with a work ethic. Thirteen, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So Paul there is honoring Rufus's mother and saying, she cared for me like a mother. Now, Rufus is mentioned in one other place in the Bible. Great Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Rufus is mentioned in Mark 15, verse 21. Simon of Cyrene, also known as the Cyrene, Cyrenean, he is mentioned, Simon is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's mentioned in all three. He's the guy that while Jesus was carrying his cross, the Romans grabbed him and made him carry Jesus' cross because Jesus' body was beginning to fail. See, Jesus carrying his cross and his body is breaking down. He has enormous amounts of blood loss. He has been beaten, attacked, harmed, kept up all night. Right? He was sweating blood less than 24 hours prior. The Lord Jesus Christ's body began to break down. He was struck with a cat of nine tails so that when he was whipped repeatedly, the flesh was being torn off of his back. When the Lord Jesus Christ had that finished, the Romans put a robe on him to mock him, a purple robe to say, here's a king. Then they tore that robe off of him, which I don't know if you're familiar with coagulation or not, but obviously when that occurs, if you tear off coagulated blood from somebody's back after it's just coagulated, what's going to happen? The Lord Jesus Christ, the man, he broke down. His body was not capable of continuing to carry the cross. And the Romans grabbed Simon, and they said, you carry his cross. Under Roman law, Any citizen could just be grabbed and made to carry a burden for up to one mile at any time by any Roman authority. So they exercised that power. They said, Simon, carry this cross. They didn't even know his name. They just told him to do it. And he did. His son is Rufus. He's mentioned in Mark 15, verse verse 21. And his other son, Alexander. Why does Mark mention the name of his sons? Because they're notable in the church. And Paul is also honoring Rufus here. Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Rufus is in Rome with his mother. Rufus's father has probably died at this point and now has taken his mother with him to be under his care. It is a difficult thing, mothers, to consider yourselves potentially being under the authority or in the house of your sons, but if you become a widow, that son, the first son, is supposed to be a double heir. 
And part of the reason they receive a double portion of the inheritance is because they are responsible for continuing to provide for you and any others in the house that are needing care and protection. When Jesus died, he said to John, John, behold your mother, and Mary, behold your son. He did not trust his brothers because they were not believing yet. Though James comes to believe and writes the book of James, his brother. They were not believing. And so Jesus gives his mother into the care of John. So Rufus here is doing that with his mother. Verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. This just seems like a list of people to greet. And it's weird because he has greet and then he always has associated people, right? Greet this person and that person. And then says stuff about them. So why are these people associated? Well, they seem to have worked together in some way. Some commentaries talk about them being like a businessman group or a group of fellow slaves that are in a household. But no, when they're fellow slaves in the household, they get listed as people in this house. If the household is not that. So this seems to be more likely, you know, a group of men. Here are a bunch of heads of house and the brethren who are with them. These are the principal men among them. And they seem to have founded a congregation or organized some sort of a assembly in Rome. So there's multiple churches in Rome because there's the church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's house, Priscilla and Aquila's house in Rome, and then here's another group. And so you have these men who are heads of their own houses and the other brethren that are with them, and so this seems to be a group that's distinct. Get to verse 15. Greet Philologus and Julia... And Nereus and his sister Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Okay, the name Philologus, that means lover of the word. And his wife, we have here, Julia. Julia means either youthful or it can refer to the pagan god Jupiter. Okay, so you have, here is the lover of the word and youthful. And she's listed. So she's probably known as someone who's useful, right? Because she's listed also and honored here. And this idea that, again, you have another husband-wife duo being listed. And so you could imagine the usefulness of a team that is a word-loving husband and an energetic wife. Then we get to Nereus and his sister. The sister is mentioned. And Olympus and all the saints who are with them. So what we have is Nereus and his sister, and then there's also Olympus. So these seem to be three people that are joined together in some way. Probably a household, because the sister would be living in the house, being cared for. And then all the saints who are with them. But why are these people all grouped together? And why are there saints with them? That seems to be another assembly. This is another local church in Rome. So these are the prominent houses in Rome, and uh, there's a church in Rome with the prominent households there, and then there's some of the notable women there. Now, um, Nereus, in writings of William Barclay, he mentions this Nereus, and we have a, um, 
another place here where there's a, a, a grave of, of this person. So the first Christian graveyard in Rome is owned by Flavius Clemens and Domitilla, his wife. The Nereus there has written on the tomb, or on the, the gravestone there, that he was the chamberlain of the house. And as a chamberlain, that would mean that you run the internal affairs of the house, you, you have special access to the head of the house, would serve sort of as a, you might think of a butler and steward combined, and would probably have financial responsibilities of running some of the treasury of the home or having at least a budget to manage those things. So it seems that this is likely the same person in the same sort of way, the time frame, the location, the names, and the fact that, again, we have a, a single name there, and so the single name implies likely a slave. And it's on the gravestone. So those are things that would point to that, and if that's the same person, there would be additional information there. Um, notice that the sister Olympus is in the household, and she remained in the household until she was married. There's a protection of a man that occurs in the biblical standard. Single women are to be protected by some covenant head. Verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. So this is the last point before we round out here. We see greetings or salute. This is positive, honorable speech. Other places in the scriptures you see the right hand of fellowship, the shaking of a hand is an honoring greeting. It's an acknowledgement of a person, an accepting in. And that's appropriate with all sorts of people who you're connected to and you know, obviously has no sort of sexual concern at all. Embracing, we see approved in the Bible in multiple places. The concern, of course, is you know, how do you do that in a way that's honorable, respectable, and avoiding any sort of impropriety in that. But you know, Acts 20, verse 37, when Paul is leaving the church at Ephesus, the church embraces Paul, kisses Paul, they're weeping over him, right? So there's embracing and kissing, and we see that. And you can find the idea of, you know, handshake, hug, kiss, those are things that are, they have appropriate place. Now, we have here this command to greet one another with a holy kiss. And typically the way that's dealt with is, as a cultural thing, that basically Italians just move on. And they were Italians, right? This is Rome. But you see the use of kiss um, in lots of contexts in the Bible. There are 32 uses of the word kiss in the Old Testament. There are uh, in 31 verses. One of the ones that has kiss twice is verse 2 of Song of Solomon. Okay? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Okay? So that one, clearly a sexual usage. right? Um, of the other ones, you have all sorts of stuff. You have Laban kissing Jacob. You have case of You have Jacob kissing Rachel five seconds after he meets her, not in a sexual way. You have all sorts of examples of kissing. There are 16 uses of the word kiss in the New Testament. Six of them are about Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. So why why is that such a big deal? Kissing is a sign of closeness. If someone kisses you on the cheek, it's a sign of affection and closeness. Right? If somebody kisses you on the head, right? you ever kiss your children on the head? Right? There, are, there are different ways of doing that. And you can go from that to the more sexual, right? There's an obvious way of sexually kissing. A holy kiss would obviously not be that. 
So there are five uses of a command to give a holy kiss. Four of them are from Paul. Apparently, Paul thought this was a big deal. He has the command to give a holy kiss. That's the exact wording each time. A holy kiss. Peter mentions it once. Peter talks about, let's see the exact wording here. He says, the kiss of love. The kiss of love. The, the definite article there, the, gives some meaning to it. It's sort of like when Paul talks about the amen. Right? You go, you say amen at the end of a prayer because it signifies something and it's an element of worship. It's the amen. Right? When you say amen after a prayer, you're like, that's my prayer. I agree with all of it. It's mine too. That's mine going up to God. And I am accepting that as well and I have responsibility and agreement for that prayer. I'm adding my voice to it when you say amen. The kiss of love. I don't think this is a cultural thing. I think what tends to happen, you know, one of the nice things about Protestant culture is a sense of propriety. One of the things where we seem to have stepped out of the way is to think there's never an appropriate place to give a holy kiss or a kiss of love. I think it says something about us that we all feel weird about the idea of giving a holy kiss or a kiss of love. Maybe it's just me. Okay, just me. So that says something about us. And I think a part of that is the over-sexualization of the culture, where it's difficult for us to deal with touch in a way that doesn't become sexualized in a lot of ways. And so that's something that we have to overcome. We need to have a change there. And I think it's um, the question is, how do you deal with the fact that there are five places where they command to do that? And so I would suggest, first, fathers, husbands, Make sure to give affectionate, non-sexual kisses to your wives and in addition to the enjoyment of the marriage bed. Fathers and mothers, give holy kisses and the kiss of love to your children. Build that godly place for that. Women, I would encourage you to consider greeting each other if you have a very close relationship, to consider that there might be a time when you kiss another woman with a holy kiss on the cheek or something like that. And I also think that the men should never try this or I'll kill you. (laughs) Now, those are appropriate places to consider that. I think that God has given to us the holy kiss and the kiss of love as a part of building relationship and bond. And so thinking about those things and the way that they're appointed by God is appropriate. Now, Judas takes that and he kisses Jesus with a betrayal. Right, so there's obviously a place for men to even greet each other with the kiss of love. Okay? And so... That being the case, if we are not, if we don't see that as something that could have beauty to it or be good or if we turn it into some homosexual thing or whatever because we are too bent to thinking about the sexual, right, any of that, that's a problem with us. So we need to think about, men, what's wrong with us? Seriously, what's wrong with us? Why can't we make that into a thing? And it, what's wrong? So we need to consider that. I don't have the answer for you immediately. But 
the idea that it was used in a betrayal way, it's supposed to be disgusting. And we're commanded in Psalm 2, which we're about to sing, to kiss the sun. So the betrayal of Jesus with a kiss is something that's supposed to be disgusting. It's a taking of the name of God in vain. It's a breaking of the third commandment. You betray me with a kiss? Now, another place where there's kissing in the New Testament, there are three uses of the word. You remember when the woman comes in and anoints Jesus with expensive oil and she kisses his feet continually, just keeps kissing his feet. Now, the Pharisees that are there, they're disgusted by this. Like, don't you know this woman has a salacious past? And Jesus' response to them is, when I came into your house, you didn't give me any oil to anoint myself with. She has given me all of this expensive oil. You didn't greet me with a kiss. And she has kissed my feet continually. That's Jesus' rebuke. So Jesus obviously thinks there's a positive usage there. The other one is the one we already read, where Paul is kissed by the church and by the elders of the church. The elders of the church... Not women, men, men kissing Paul. Okay, so you have the elders of the church giving kisses and weeping over and embracing Paul. And so, greetings, the right hand of fellowship, an embrace and a kiss. I think the embrace and the kiss should especially be for in-family units and also uh, between people of the same sex. And so you have the greeting in the right hand of fellowship between men and women that are not in the same house or not related, and you have the embracing and the kissing. And I think we obviously can have other places where there's an appropriateness for embracing and kissing in terms of between the sexes, even outside of the house, but it becomes, you know, there's, there's difficulty in how do you deal with that. And so for you know, propriety's sake, you're, you're careful about that sort of thing. But this woman kissed Jesus' feet. So I don't have all the answers for that right now. I've given you some general rules to be careful to avoid you know, the misuse and to avoid the sexualization. And we can work out the details over time. But this is probably more time than you've ever heard in a sermon about the Holy Kiss before, so you're welcome. And that being said, are there any comments, questions, or objections from voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching, Ellery. I just wanted to give clarification real quick. Um, so for the historical connections that we see, um, for example, uh, Rufus, um, where, where there's some belief that he was he was a Rufus referred to in, in Mark 15, and uh, with Apollatus, uh, the, the tomb of uh, that maybe uh, thought to be Amplius. You're saying that that's, that's a possibility. It's not necessarily a, something that is. I, I would argue that the Rufus is. Uh, I think for the, uh, the one that's the tomb, I'd say that's a possibility. Would you be willing to maybe like later on go through that to make the connection? Um, talk about why you believe that that truly is? Uh, yeah, I, 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 sure. The brief answer is simply this is the only other place where Rufus is mentioned, and why is he mentioned in Mark if he's not somehow prominent? And why is he greeted if he's not somehow prominent? That's it. That's all I've got. Okay. I'll, I'll something to think about. Thank you. Sure.
And then and the last question, the second question is, um, you're, as you're, you're talking uh, about some of these people that, that Paul, you, you think that Paul might have given nicknames to some of these people. So for uh, example, Philologus uh, and Junia, like, could these have been like not their real names, but like nicknames? Is that what you're they could be. I, I don't know that, but I'm just saying um, the meanings of their names are this. And so if they are nicknames, that would suggest this sort of intentionality. And if they're not nicknames, it's just a providential, interesting thing of the meaning of the names. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Great. Mr. Cordova? Thank you for your teaching. I do not have any questions or comments on this yet, but thank you for Great. bringing that up. It's a uh, very edifying uh, I also wanted to comment and uh, show appreciation for the list that you gave for uh, the duties and uh, ordering for women, children, and husbands. Uh, I find that very helpful. Uh, and I will probably be making a copy and putting it up on my bathroom window so I can get it or mirror every morning. So thank you. Appreciate it. Good job. Thank you. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to our souls, that you would give us greater wisdom, that you would help us to apply these things. We thank you for this list of names. We thank you for these greetings. We thank you for the example of a culture of honor that the Apostle Paul gave to us as a part of the apostolic tradition. I ask that you would help us to grab hold of it and to look for ways to honor each other and to find ways of pointing out each other's strengths and doing it even publicly. I ask that you would help us to serve each other, to have reputations that are honorable, and that you would help us in having the positive things be pointed out, encouraging each other by that pointing out to seek to copy each other's virtues and graces. And Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to pay for our sins. As we consider all of these virtues and graces, we see in ourselves failings and places of weakness. And we are reminded that we are breakers of your law and that we fail to honor you as we ought and we fail to honor each other as you've commanded. And so I ask, Father, that you would forgive us and that you would help us, knowing the forgiveness that we have in Christ, to be thankful and out of that gratitude to be quick to honor each other. Father, I ask that you'd help us to avoid the pitfall of thinking that because people have some weaknesses and have done some dishonorable things that we can never honor them. Rather, help us to be quick to forgive and in that place of forgiveness to be quick to honor. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.